Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Bring yourself back online. No one knows what I'm thinking. Tell us what you think of your world. This is just a cheap trick. Some people choose to see the ugliness in this world. The disarray. I choose to see the beauty. Welcome to Still Watching Westworld, an unofficial podcast about the HBO series Westworld. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. Each week we'll break down the latest theories, baffling questions, and hidden illusions, as well as occasionally chat with someone who has worked on the show itself. This week we have a very special guest, actor Jeffrey Wright, who, I don't know, plays Bernard and or Arnold and or Bernard depending on <laughs> what you're looking at. But uh, he he graciously spoke to us about this big, uh, very big revelation for Bernard slash Arnold in this episode. That conversation will come at the end of the podcast. But first, Richard and I are going to discuss and only spoil up to season two, episode seven, Les Escorchés. Did I pronounce that correctly? Uh, I, I'm going to say yes, because I don't want to try to pronounce it. Up. So, yes, perfect. <laughs> okay. Les Escorchés, directed by Nicole Castle and written by Jordan Goldberg and Ron Fitzgerald. Um, this was as frustrated and sort of disoriented as I was feeling after last week's episode. And Jeffrey Wright talked to me a little bit about that frustration and disorientation. Um, this, I really liked this episode for the clarity that it provided. And I felt sort of like the the ship was righted a little bit. What did you think sort of overall of this episode, Richard? I mean, I liked it. I thought it was pretty, you know, muscular and sort of hard, like hard charging. Like it didn't really, there weren't, there weren't any moments of kind of quiet introspection. I don't think even when like, you know, Bernard was talking with Ford and like, um, 
you know, and a lot of people like almost died, which was kind of crazy. So it was an interesting midpoint episode. Yeah. And it feels like, um, not to keep referencing an, a conversation you'll have to wait a little while to get to, but you know, I kind of asked Jeffrey Wright about like whether or not he felt like this episode changes the stakes of the show entirely with, um, you know, something big that happens at the uh, midway point of the episode. Uh, and I think it kind of does cousin kind of doesn't, but we'll, we'll talk about that. But, but, uh, it's so funny for given that we didn't really know what the cradle was uh, kind of until last week, the fact that it's gone now feels like a very big deal. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. <laughs> here today, gone tomorrow. Um, but let's start at the beginning. We get, we where we start in the sort of modern day, present day storyline with uh, Luke Hemsler's character Stubbs going up to Bernard and being like, buddy, let's get out of here. These Dulles people are kind of crazy. I don't really, I, I've had a, a conversion. I don't really support what they're doing. Uh, there's a satellite phone sort of, I think, or a sat com, whatever device in Teresa's office. So let's go get it. Um, and then, you know, it winds up, they get nabbed and taken down to the underground lab that we saw last season. And something that I just never thought we would see, which is the revisitation of the Teresa death and, Bernard having to sort of reckon with what happened there a bit more. Uh, what did, what did you think of this opening? Yeah. I, I was a little confused about like when we were, you know, yet again, yeah. uh, I yeah. feel like it jumped right into Stubbs this kind of like change of, you know, policy or whatever, um, mm-hmm. which in kind of a disorienting way. But um, no, I think that uh, I like that they, you know, I like shows when they remember their history, you know, and this just shows yeah. about that. And so going back to Teresa, I feel like was like a big part of that. Yeah, and then we get this this next revelation, which sort of is is echoed and mirrored from season one, where like they found that underground lab in the first place because of a door, a hidden door, and this happens once again. There's a door behind a bookcase, and we find another like a secret cabinet inside the secret lab, full of a bunch of hanging Bernards. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was a <laughs> creepy image. I must have been weird for Jeffrey Wright to see or like do, you know. Right. Yeah. He talked about that too, but like he, um, this is an image that was in the trailer for the season. So I know like a lot of people knew it was coming. Um, I don't know that it was clear from the trailer that Bernard would be there when the discovery was made. And so, yeah, for him to sort of stare down, he obviously already knows he's a host, but to be exposed in this way and to stare down, I don't know. Yeah. This like just, um, in your face representation of how fake you are. Is yeah. is like a huge reckoning. I, for me, and I, I could be wrong, but for me, this answers the question of like, what was Ford printing down in the lab downstairs? Maybe not because like um, he already had a functioning Bernard, so maybe he wasn't printing a functioning Bernard. But in, back in season one, when they were down in that lab, there was a body being printed um, right. down there. A lot of people thought that was like a fake Anthony Hop. You know, he's printing another Ford or something like that. But um, it, it's it seems yeah, like he was ahead. making Bernard, yeah. It seems like he was he was just uh, in in the business of making Bernard. He really likes making Bernards. Who doesn't? Yeah. Who wouldn't? Yeah. What a lovely face. Uh, then we flash back forward in time. Or no, we're still in the modern storyline. Sorry, I too am lost. Yeah. Uh, Charlotte is interrogating him now that she knows he's a host for sure. And trying to figure out where the Abernathy, she calls it like the control unit, the mind egg of Abernathy has gone. And then we get a flashback. And most of the rest of the episode takes place 
in this flashback. This that, is what I found yeah. confusing. Yeah, because I kind of like, I feel like I missed the uh, some sort of like shift or indication. And I was like, wait, weren't they just doing this? And why, you know, I just was, uh, because it, for going right from Charlotte to like past Charlotte. Yeah. Was yeah. like kind of disorienting in a way that I found frustrating. But like, again, maybe I wasn't like as dialed in or as I should have been or something. Yeah, I think the only thing we have to distinguish ourselves between the two timelines in this episode are, or one of the, one of the main things we have is the character. I mean, leave it up to a Sarsgaard to be the key to it all. Go, like Gustav Sarsgaard's <laughs> character Strand is in the modern storyline, right? And then the Irish guy Coughlin, who gets his face punched off, is in the flashback. Yeah, so, like you called yeah. that last week, you were like, "I think this this, this guy's not going to be around for a long time." Like they're going to they introduce these flashy characters and then dispatch them pretty quickly. And indeed, they did. Yeah, in a in a dramatic fashion. But yeah, we get so we we flash back. So this is like, I think it's like just a few days previous or whatever. And it's all it's all sort of colliding. And in this episode, we talk. You know, you you pointed out last week that a bunch of story storylines sort of come together with that explosion that happened at the end of last week. Like, yeah. oh, we know that Bernard and Dolores and Charlotte are all in this at the Mesa and on the same storyline. And this week, we also get Maeve brought into that same location. So we're all our storylines except for the man in black. Well, no, because he's connected to Maeve. That's all brought together on the same. We all know where we are and when we are, um, except for this like frame narrative of the of the Gustav Sarsgaard strand storyline. But um but yeah, so we flash back to just a couple days ago, Charlotte, um, who's got Abernathy nailed to a chair. And I, I think we neglected to, you know, in a season of a lot of Jesus imagery, I think we neglected to talk about what it means to have someone nailed to a chair. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but that's the thing that happened. And um, Stubbs and Charlotte are protecting him and Dolores and her crew invade the Mesa. And you've got this nice little like bait and switch where you see a pile of naked bodies and you think it's hosts, but it turns out it's humans and the hosts are in the, in the black gear. Which means we get Teddy in this kind of like GI Joe, you know, all black kind of ensemble and stern face. I, I, it, even though he was very serious, it looked like I could, I felt like James Marsden was having fun. Like it was kind of like, we're, we're, we're playing army guys, you know? <laughs> I, I'm not kidding you, Richard. This is the number one thing I wanted to talk to you about in regards to this episode. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that we're on the same trajectory. <laughs> we're with on that. brand. Yeah. 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 Later in the notes, I have written Marson is very hot in his Delos gear. Yeah. Like, yeah, he's got murder face on the whole time. Uh, and, you know, we already saw Teddy with murder face in the last week's episode, but this week you add the like black. Uh, flak jacket or whatever and it just like the whole the whole look is complete um so yeah a lot a lot of murder and, and when he has murder face he um it accentuates his jawline in a way that <laughs> it's like Excellent. how does he have that jawline um so yeah i i think he was having fun i was having fun i mean d- despite the indiscriminate killing uh good for this and more of it please Yes. Uh, then we hop over into the cradle. We know we're in the cradle again because, like, the aspect ratio changes on the episode. So when we're in widescreen letterbox, we're inside the cradle. Um, it also, you know, we're in Sweetwater. We see last week we saw sort of Dolores and Teddy in there. This week we've got Clementine, like, original crisp curls and not much of a rind on you, Clementine. Yeah. Um, and Maeve in the Mariposa. And that's kind of like 
fun and disorienting. I don't know. What did you think of that? I Yeah, it, I found it a little bit like melancholy in a way, you know, like, oh, right. The sim- simpler times, um, even though obviously Maeve and uh, everyone else were like repressed robots or oppressed robots rather. Um, right. You know, but it was still kind of like a funny s- sort of sad, like harkening back to the past. Yeah, no, I agree. It's it's you see that and you're like, oh, this is how Sweetwater's supposed to be, and then you have to remind yourself, like, no, this is like a terrible, yeah, oppressive cycle that they were all on. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a weirdly incongruous sort of sight. But uh, we get Anthony Hopkins, and like as frustrated as I was to see his return in last week's episode, and I was like, oh, motherfucker, Anthony Hopkins is back. Um, he's so. <laughs> good at delivering these speeches and you're just yeah. like yeah westworld missed this i think it really did like what, yeah. what was your, your uh, thoughts i on that? felt the exact same way you know like there there's just this when when westworld when the writing gets all you know poetic like he just speaks that better than anyone else the timber yeah. of his voice his weird kind of cadence like you know um yeah he just like he just nails it and it's really it's soothing and creepy at the same time which is sort of like kind of like the broader experience of watching the show which is really entertaining but also like gets into your brain a little bit so i yeah i like you was sort of like okay i don't like when they just like resurrect characters you know that they had sort of declared were definitively dead but in this case i you know it actually works for me i know exactly what you mean about the cadence it's just just like the Welshiness of his voice, you know, mm-hmm. and you're just sort of like, yes, yes, I want to hear you say everything about Westworld. And so he sort of explains a bit of what we already knew, which is that like the way that Westworld exists, it's not uh, to further develop the AI of the hosts. It's to use the host as a control to uh, examine and scan the cognition of the guests and to copy over the human consciousness onto, you know, whatever, another CPU. Um, and But Ford says, like, you know, their experiment doesn't work. He says something really lovely, like, they've copied humans over, like, a soft-headed boy humming a tune that someone else composed. Like, you're just like, thank you, Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> yeah. You, <laughs> mentioning the, line. <laughs> you mentioning the Welsh thing now has me wondering if they should get Catherine Zeta-Jones for season three. To just say, of course, to say more Westworld poetry in Welsh or in a Welsh yeah, accent, and, anyway. Yes, and uh, the Americans is over, so why don't let's get Matthew Reese over there? Hey, okay, some Michael Sheen, like bring all the Welsh people are, over. Are we slowly you know? turning this into Torchwood? <laughs> are they going to go, go film into Cardiff? And or Welshwood, um, <laughs> Welshworld, <laughs> yeah, Torchwood, great show, very sexy. Um, all right, so. We, um, yeah, so so he sort of explains to Bernard something we already had kind of put together ourselves, which is the point of Westworld, that it's um, an examination of human consciousness. And he also points out, you know, and then they do this thing that they did so much at the end of season one, where Bernard accuses something of Ford of something at length. And Ford goes, no, actually, you know, he's like, Oh, so you, so you're immortal and you want to live forever. And this is what you're doing. And Ford's like, no, no, that's not what I'm doing. (laughs) Yeah. Um, That he is not trying to be Jim Delos, um, that he is existing eternally in the code, which is just sort of what how he wants to live. And um, so that 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 at least gratifies me a little bit because like I didn't like that idea of 
Ford chasing the kind of immortality that other people chased at the end of last season. I wanted his death at the hands of Dolores to mean something, and it did mean something. And yet he has a kind of immortality, but it's not it's not the same. He's stuck at a computer. Yeah. Um, but I also, it, like, so this is basically what he explains to Bernard and, you know, hence us, about, mm-hmm. a, about like, the kind of grander scheme of, West, of Westworld or the whole Delos operation. It's like, this is what um, William, you know, said to Jim when, he, you know, to, to convince him to buy the thing or to, to invest in it, right? Like, this is the realization of, of what right. William's, the potential that William saw. So, right. So if Ford is talking about it too, does that mean that Ford was for it too, or is he just explaining how Delos was manipulating it, not and not and th- not including himself in that? I think the latter. I think he was just okay. sort of like yeah. this. Is, this is what I was forced to be sort of complicit in, right? Right. Um, and and this is how I've kind of taken advantage of it. Like I didn't like that this is what they were doing, but I've taken advantage of it to create a kind of digital immortality. Um, that's outside of their stupid idea of immortality. This is my idea of immortality, and it's better, I think, is what okay. he's saying. Yeah. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Um, and then we cut over to Maeve on the run with her daughter, uh, conveniently separated from her posse. It's just Maeve and her daughter hiding out in the house, uh, and then the man in black and Lawrence and, and Lawrence's primos ride up and sort of attack in this echo of season one or, or Maeve's flashback. And um, what I like that we're seeing from William over and over and over again is this like paranoia, this like yeah. he's, he's seeing Ford everywhere and even in characters we know aren't exactly you know Maeve is not Ford of all the of all the robots in the park Maeve is the least Ford um so for him to accuse um her of that is like just reveals his own uh degrading I don't know yeah his paranoia which is probably was sort of Ford's intention right to like partially kind of like not gaslight exactly but just like make him question his entire reality yeah um, and then we get this just like, uh, it, like I said, this is a, an episode full of violence. This might not be my favorite violent moment, but it is m- maybe my second favorite because I just really love, you know, for all we saw, like Maeve forget her power and cringe and run from Ghost Nation last week. This week we see her uh, confronting the person who did the most damage to her, William. And all my like, frustrations with William (laughs) I feel like are taken out in the scene where she's just like fuck you dude and just comes at him and it is enormously satisfying yeah no totally satisfying and also like 
you know, I didn't think he was, I, I wasn't like, oh my God, he's going to die. But like, I, I, it was, it seemed possible, you know, I in know. a way with this show. And I, I think that's interesting that like, at this particular point, you know, a little bit more than halfway through the second season that I was like, you know what? I think they could kill him. I was like, did they bring Anthony Hawkins back just to kill off Ed Harris? <laughs> Are we trading like veteran actor for veteran actor? Is that what's happening here? Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and, and I think, you know, there's this popular theory that William, Ed Harris as William is a host. Um, I don't believe that, but I think this episode certainly won't dissuade some people of that because, like, he withstands so many shots. He takes so many hits, and he's still there, so... Yeah, it's um, interesting. Yeah, but we... Um, we also get this this great Lawrence moment. I've been a little frustrated with like the limitations or, or just not using Clifton Collins Jr. to like the full extent of what he can do. I think it's so similar to my complaint about James Marsden. And um, he at least gets this like kind of good moment before possibly he's dead forever. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, know? so like um, and the thing with Maeve not being able to control him. She said, "Oh, you're awake too." So, I so I guess yeah. that means she can only control the ones who have not skipped the plane of sort of loop consciousness, right? Like the the more the, the more like droney ones she can, but like someone like like Lawrence who has kind of passed through, that means she can't. Is that so? We're getting some clarification about her new powers. Yeah, but it's interesting. So, like, I I can understand that she wouldn't be able to control like a Dolores. No. But can she control like a Hector? Is Hector awake enough that she can't control him? Um, like the drone hosts, I get that. Like all all the other guys in that scene, or all the um, like Shogun World people who are still on their loops, like she could control all of those people. But um, yeah, the degree of wokeness and the various hosts continues to be kind of a mystery to me, and. Um, and especially because after she can't control him, I feel like we see Lawrence like fully wake up. Like she urges yeah. him to wake up. She like gives him a little nudge because he was almost there. Right. And then he remembers all the things that William did. And that's gratifying too, because I've really hated to see William like palling around with Lawrence when he shot his yeah. wife in the head last season, yeah. you know? So, yeah. um, yeah, I, I found all of that satisfying except for the interruption where William gets spared once again, Lawrence is down, and then Maeve gets cut down. And once again, yeah, it just felt like everything felt different this episode where I was like, well, could they, are they going to kill Maeve right here? Well, like, probably not, but like, could they, you know? Yeah. And can we, I know we're only spoiling up to episode seven of Westworld, but can we talk about Solo? <laughs> is that allowed on this podcast? I guess like, Skip forward a minute. Yeah, skip. Just skip to the Jeffrey Wright interview. That's why you're here anyway. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm going to spoil so- Solo, which you've seen, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I was watching this episode and I said, if they fucking kill Tandy Newton in a, in a <laughs> second thing before her time, I am going to be furious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so I don't think they're going to do that because she's such the breakout star of the show. You she know? Yeah. Um, I, I feel like that would be like, I don't know, killing Ben on Lost or something like after a season and a half, which, you know, obviously they weren't going to do. So, um, I was nervous though. Like, like, you know, like you said, like, I was like, Oh my God, like, because, and also now that we know that there's not, that they're kind of, um, 
sna- you know, snapping the tether to like the kind of continual resurrection technology, the yeah. stakes are, are that much higher. So I think, and I could be wrong, but like, so Jeffrey Wright was saying there's still some possibility of resurrection. So my thought, and I don't have any like exact confirmation on this, is if we, is if they are shot in the head and destroy that like control unit, maybe then they're dead forever. So sort of like a zombie. If you destroy the head, they're dead. Mm -hmm. But if you just like give them a bunch of shots to the body, maybe they can be brought back. Does that make sense? Yeah, because Ford said in season one, remember, because this is like set a little bit in the future. In season one, Ford said, I love The Walking Dead. I even liked Fear (laughs) The Walking Dead. So he's like in that. He that's he like, but it's like a little Easter egg for the fans. He was like, I was really into Walking Dead until Andrew Lincoln left the show in season nine. I was not into that. So, you know, like go Negan. I love Negan. Like everybody loves Negan. (laughs) I hate that show. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, um, so yeah. So the, I mean, I think that that's going to be the distinction. Like when the cradle existed, you could bring anyone back always. Now I think it's like, if a bot, if the head is destroyed, if the brain ball um, goes away, you're yeah. If the the brain ball is done and then who knows, they might find another loophole for that. You never like, you know, the show is able to find, there might be like another backup to the backup. We, you know, cradle to the cradle will rock. Um, but, um, then we, so then we cut back to back in the cradle. Ford reveals to Bernard how he was created. And we finally understand that first thing we saw this season, which is that it's like a cradle version of Dolores because the Delos technology to capture cognition, um, human cognition didn't exist when Arnold was alive. Uh, Ford and Dolores had to do the best they could in the cradle uh, to you know, test him over and over and over again to try to get there, to try to get as close to Arnold um, as he could. And that that means there's, like, kind of more Arnold in Bernard than I expected. I don't know. I, I'll have to go back and watch season one to talk about um, when, or to see when Ford discusses, like, what he left out. I think it was, like, defiance or something like that. Like, I forget what he left out of Arnold um, to make Bernard. But Dolores seems so interested in in this cradle version of Dolores seems so interested in making sure that this Bernard is close to Arnold as as he can be. I have a question about the cradle. Yeah, it's sort of an if a tree falls in the woods. If sure, an, if a non uploaded consciousness is not in the like if a Bernard is not in the cradle, no one like is is stuff still happening in there? Do you know what I mean? Like, it's kind of a question. Uh, Here, here's, a, here's a question. So if the world, if, if all of humanity were, were to die and there was no more electricity, would memes still move? Like, or GIFs, I mean? <laughs> like, would GIFs still move in some sense? Because, like, I feel I, like the cradle is all about perception from an outsider, you know? Um, because it doesn't, it's all sort of theoretical otherwise. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think there has to be a way in which this is this is all observable via code. Does that make sense? Like, sure. That there is a, a way to watch the cradle without sort of like being in it. That's just that's a less literal, more just code. You know, ones and zeros based. And that's all processing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That 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 makes that makes sense. 
Um, for a second, as you were asking me those questions, I felt like the cortical fluid was leaking out of my ears because I wasn't sure. <laughs> Sorry, I, I probably did <laughs> not word it well, but like I no no yeah, no no. I just I found myself thinking yeah. about like what's going on. Yeah. Um, we see the the beautiful house that Arnold was building for his family that was like completed inside the cradle. Um, and then Ford does this like terrifying thing where he catches a ride out of the cradle inside Bernard. Um, and we talked in episode, I think it was four about like all the hell imagery around Jim Delos. And I think we get it again here. Like there's this moment where Ford walks up to Bernard and he talks about taking away his free will and you see him sort of reflected in Bernard's glasses and it's sort of reddish and it's really ominous. And he's just sort of like, I'm taking your free will from you, <laughs> which is like, it's, it's confusing to me. Um, I think Ford, and we get it, we get this line repeated in at the end of the episode, but I think Ford's stated mission is to free Bernard, uh, is to make him suffer to the point of freedom, which is sort of what we saw Maeve do to Lawrence. Like she made him relieve, relive trauma in order to wake up. So to make Bernard suffer in order to achieve his freedom. Um, but stripping him of his free will in this way, this is just so violating and he violates him again before the end of the episode. And I was just wondering like what you thought of, of this whole. Maneuver. Yeah. I think it was an issue. Well, first of all, he did this like kind of almost like Hannibal Lecter esque like hand grab for Bernard, like toward the camera. That yeah. was like super, yeah. super creepy. And so that whole yeah. thing where he's saying that and he kind of has, says it with a little, you know, smirk or sort of like, there's almost like a laugh in there where it's like, you, it's a good reminder, similar to the Teresa scene in the first season, that like, oh, like Ford is kind of really bad. Like he's like a cruel person, and and like, um, we kind of, it's easy to think of him as this sort of like benevolent creator who's like, you know, beautiful, you know, child was sort of like perverted by this evil corporation, and the corporation's bad too. But like Ford, kind of sucks as like also he's also a villain. Oh yeah. You know, yeah. and I can forget that because I'm just listening to his, you know, sonorous purr of, uh, you know, while, while he says these kind of crazy things. But, um, yeah, he's bad. And this good. The scene was a kind of ch- was a creepy reminder of that. Right. The only good person is Maeve and Bernard. <laughs> the, the yeah. Like. I, I go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, Clementine, I, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Clementine's fine. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan Tucker was a sweet boy before he. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, all right. So, yeah, the, exactly right. That very creepy Hannibal Lecter, you expected him to slurp as he, like, sort of <laughs> caught a ride out of the cradle. And Elsie gets Bernard out of the cradle room, sort of just in time for this next thing that happens. Like, first of all, we see Clementine go ham on a bunch of Delos guys. It's kind of great. Mm-hmm. Um, she's still in her, like, zombie form, but she's just going for it. And, uh, and she gets kind of put down. And so this is one of those instances where, like, I didn't see a headshot, so I don't know if she's down forever. But um, she's down, definitely. And then we get... I love this. (laughs) This is... We get Angela played uh, by Tallulah Riley in the cradle room. And we get this, like, creepy Delos QA guy coming up to her. We get to see her weaponize her, like, sex bodiness that, you know, they programmed into her to sort of distract and subdue him. 
And then she gets like when she had her exit line, and I think this is the end of Angela. When she had her exit line, I actually audibly cheered in my house like a weirdo, um, which was well, welcome to Westworld. Did we? I bu- guess she- <laughs> did we buy this highly trained soldier who knew she was a robot? That he'd be like, oh, pretty girl, you know? Like, like I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't know if I was quite sold on that. Although I guess you know. Straight men are stupid. So sorry. No, <laughs> look at that. <laughs> I guess. That I mean. I mean, yeah. Richard. What would you do if 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 James Marsden approached you and was like giving you full like charm <laughs> yes, offensive? Murder me, Daddy. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think that I think that um, I think you're right. It was like a little too doofy. Like I think she could have caught him off guard in a way that wasn't like quite as like you're so pretty. Yeah. She's like, no, I'm perfect. Like, yeah, that was a little. That was a little much, but I did. It was still I, fun, though. I mean, yeah, I did like her welcome to Westworld. I was glad it wasn't like welcome to Westworld, bitch. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, yeah, welcome to Westworld. And then just like, boom, and the cradle's gone. And I, I, I really hope death starts to mean something. And I hope not because I don't like Tallulah Riley and not because I don't like her performance, but just because I think that it's just more satisfying and dramatic that way. If this is the last we see of her. Yeah. You know, no, I agree. There has to be some kind of real stakes, you know? Yeah. Um, and then we get, the, like, just as I kind of don't believe William surviving that encounter with Maeve, I don't really buy Charlotte escaping this encounter with Dolores, where Dolores has, like, a little buzzsaw up to her head and then, like, gets distracted and doesn't finish the job. Um, and also, it seems to have no effect on Charlotte. Like, that's that's the problem, I think, of, like, the flashing back and forward, is that Charlotte is just Charlotte, all the way through and the fact that she had like a near death experience in this scene it does not seem to have changed her and like a, almost way. a really gruesome death yeah. you know uh, yeah. i thought i thought tessa thompson was terrific in sort of showing that like mounting fear but you're yeah. right that like then the characterization goes right back to, to neutral you know um so yeah you don't really get a sense of progression because right. because you're right that's a really extreme thing to have almost happen um, and I also think that like Dolores strategically is not acting that smartly. I mean, you know, sending Teddy out of the room to go investigate the gunshots. It's like, you know, there are gunshots. You're like, that, that's right. part of this whole thing. Like, why would that surprise her? Um, but you know, I, 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 again, I was like, are they going to kill Charlotte? Like, because it, this whole episode felt like we were building toward a major character dying and it didn't really happen. Um, but uh, I don't know. Again, I felt that we were close. How dare you put a little more respect on Lawrence right now? Um, no, I. Um, <laughs> sorry. Oh yes, sorry, Lawrence. <laughs> well, and I think I think also Abernathy dies in this scene, and I actually That's for true. all the issues that I've and I wouldn't call him. I mean, it's funny because like Tallulah Riley and I'm so sorry I don't have his name right in front of me, but the actor who plays Abernathy, they were both bumped to series regulars this season. I think only to both be killed in this episode, but um, Abernathy. I've had so much issue with, as you know, the Dolores plotline this season. I've had a lot of issue, like, really grasping to what they're trying to do with Dolores and Teddy. But the Dolores and her dad stuff has worked for me with for throughout the season, like, when she encountered him last time, yeah. too. And this actually really worked on me. Like, her saying goodbye to him, which does feel like a final goodbye for, like, two kind of immortal creatures. Um and him finally like having that clarity before death is very like end of Buffy season two. Um, it just, it, that worked for me. Yeah, no, I thought it was a good, a, a nice scene and it gave, you know, um, Evan Rachel Wood a chance to kind of play some variation, you know, 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's been sort of the pontificating, hard-charging, you know, warrior Dolores or Wyatt or whatever you want to call her for most of the season. And so, I mean, there have been a couple other moments, obviously, but like, I thought this in particular really grounded, um, you know, some kind of emotional register for her that we've been lacking a little bit. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think we got it again a little bit later with the Maeve scene. Um, mm-hmm. It's really just like the Dolores Teddy stuff that is just really not not doing it for me. Um, and then we get, you know, that tender moment between Dolores and her dad contrasted with uh, Teddy literally beating the face off of Coughlin, which was, you know, a thing that yeah. happened. <laughs> Bad Teddy. Um, and then Sizemore and and Sizemore brings Maeve. Oh, yeah. We forgot to mention before that Sizemore sort of like saves Maeve out in the field. So like he might have ratted her out, but he still cares about her. Um, and then he sort of ushers her into the Mesa just as all the Dallas people are leaving. And he's like, what the fuck? Um, and then he does hide or no, I'll, I'll, I'll get to that next, but then we get, um, something that I think Westworld can do. We were, I think we were talking about this in terms of um, Shogun, Shogun world and like th- sort of the beauty of the violence, the beauty mm-hmm. of like the sword fighting and stuff like that in Shogun world and how you don't really have that with like a firefight in Westworld. Like who cares about people shooting at each other? Yeah. But this, when like, when they kick in the Beethoven number seven, which is my favorite bit of Beethoven actually, um, and it's just beautiful <laughs> violence. Yeah, well, it's just I, really well choreographed. You know, and like, yeah, and 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 anything that kind of it, you know the way that it slows and sort of takes in the the, the complicated scope and the panorama of of what's happening. And there right. was there's the actress whose name I don't know, who character's name I don't know, uh, with the yellow glasses, who like, yeah, you kind of in a weird way start rooting for her because she she lasts longer than everyone else, but then she yeah. goes down, and it just yeah, it had this kind of. Uh, elegant chaos to it that um, the show is really good at when it when it does those kind of set pieces. Yeah, and we had seen that her like we had seen her dead previously this oh, season, right. so like you know she's gonna die. But like, uh, I mean, it, you know, obsessive Reddit people saw her <laughs> earlier this season. Right, <laughs> I right. certainly needed their help to find her, but like we had seen her dead. But like to watch her die, to watch this beautiful slow down, and then once again to have Anthony Hopkins like dial up the Welsh mm-hmm. to talk about when the great library burned, <laughs> the books, the stories became fire, and you're like, I don't know what you're or saying. The fire became the story. Oh, the fire became the story. Yeah, and I'm like, yeah, I don't yeah. know what you're saying, but it's so beautiful. <laughs> I love it. So he was talking about yeah. the library at Alexandria, right? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. I mean, I, I I knew what he was saying. Oh, but it's still I just like, wanted to make sure that I knew. Yeah, but it's still, he could have been like, and then the saucepan became <laughs> the unicorn. And you're like, yeah, I did. So, And um, I said, what about <laughs> breakfast at Tiffany's? <laughs> she said, oh, yeah, yeah. She just starts doing song lyrics. And we're just like, right, still, right. and yeah. I said, it's been one week. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. exactly. So, um, and then we've got this great Maeve and Dolores scene that I really love and um, like uh, ever a joy to have Evan Rachel Wood and Tandy Newton share screen time together. Um, and I like when they, I like the, that their, their mutual respect, you know? Yeah. I feel like in action stories or shows or movies, we sometimes, or we, we usually get like two men, you know, two guys forged in battle or whatever, like gruffly respecting each other, but not like being like, besties or anything and but i like that we get now we have two women or two you know female hosts or whatever doing it it's a nice mm-hmm. dynamic i like that they haven't tried to make them 
full allies and you know and and friends um i think that that they've that they've kept them a little bit apart i think is good yeah i I completely agree and we get this i don't know back and forth like mave is johnny on the spot always and like notices that something's up with teddy um and sort of gives dolores shit for that and i think that guilt that dolores feels over that causes her to actually act more the Mave in this scene than the usual Dolores, where she says, you know, you're free to choose your own path, which is not really what Dolores has been saying all season. That's what Maeve's been saying. But she's like, I'm sorry, it ends here. Like, I won't give you this mercy killing (laughs) that like, you don't want it. I won't give it to you. You know, this is sort of like all the stuff that Maeve was experiencing in Shogun World. I don't know that that will like stick with Dolores. I don't know if it's just an exception she's making for Maeve because I feel like she still like has her ideas of who deserves to go to the Valley Beyond and who doesn't. But you're right. Like it is that very like Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone, (laughs) like whatever. I, I, I see you and I respect you, even if we're on opposite sides of something. Mm -hmm. So totally. um, And, and, uh, and I, you know, this could have been felt like a, an actual kind of goodbye death scene for Maeve, Maeve, but then it cut to size more hiding and kind of listening. So I feel like they're like, don't worry. Like she still has a friend who can help her. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think he will, but, um, then we and then we have this this last violation of Bernard, which seems to have like kicked uh, off some more of that like some of that Lawrence esque flashback suffering stuff that we were talking about this awakening because uh, Ford forces Bernard to participate in the violence. He says, "What happens next will not be your fault," uh, but still has Bernard even as Bernard is protesting, like pick up a gun and mow people down. Um, And we also, I don't know if I said this already, but um, Ford as this like ghost haunting Bernard, uh, we see him often reflected. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a, you know, which we've seen all season, obviously, like we thought it was like a little trick of like how to get around not having Anthony Hopkins. Oh, just show him reflected in like windows and mirrors and stuff like that. But um, that was even something they did in season one with Ford was that like reflection sort of thing. So now he's sort of this ghost, this ghost in the machine, this reflection. Um, and, and then, yeah. And then Bernard flashes through all this stuff. We get reminded of the suffering. We get reminded, we see Arnold, we see all this stuff. Um, and then we're kicked back to the present day interrogation scene. Um, right. Yeah, where he says that uh, Abernathy's control unit is in Sector 16, Zone 4. Which we're assuming is the location of the Valley Beyond, or no? Yep, whatever that might be, yep. Um, (laughs) Um, And And how did he know that? Uh, Because he's remembering having been there, I guess, because... Like in in a few days ago, the last we see of Bernard, he's shooting that gun, and then several days have right. elapsed between him shooting that gun and him being interrogated here by Charlotte. Which or, also means several days after him washing up on shore or whatever. Right. It's like him shooting that gun. Yada yada yada. Beach. Everything that's happened leading up to him saying the discovery of the big lake of bodies. Right. 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 Which included Teddy. Which included who Teddy. may now be dead for good because they blew up. Yeah, maybe they don't have resurrection. Depends where he gets shot, I suppose. But um, yeah, so it's um, and I I don't know much about Sector Sixteen Zone Four beyond that, except for um, 
in season two, episode one, it sort of flashes on someone's tablet, like one of the the guy's tablets. So um, that, I guess, I think it's a location we haven't seen yet. It's certainly not like any of the labs we've been to already. So a, a new location awaits us uh, in future episodes. But here we are. We've done it. We've gotten a lot of answers. We've gotten everyone pretty much on the same page time-wise. Uh, and and we're and I think we're closing the gap between the past and the present storyline. You know, like we talked about having a two week gap between the past and the present, and I think now we're down to just like a matter of days. And so um, I'm excited to see where we go from there. How are you feeling? Like last week versus I know we already I already asked this, but like last week versus this week, how are you feeling about Westworld? I like this week a lot more. I thought it was yeah. you know like exciting and i liked the way that things were explained and they were explained cogently enough but like i but also while maintaining you know some sort of cool mystery um i didn't i the the closer the the um we get between the two storylines the harder it is for me to kind of parse like when you have you know bernard and charlotte in the glassy walled place in the mesa in both timelines like that felt confusing. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and, and yeah, so I, yeah. I'm just like eager for the show to just like, for these two things to just meet up and the show just can kind of streamline itself a little bit, which it feels like is coming maybe next episode. Yeah. I feel like I need Charlotte to have like different hair or a hat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like so, yeah, <laughs> she just like starts wearing like a Westworld brand baseball cap just to like, yeah, <laughs> just so you know where you are, when you are. Uh, to maybe clarify some of these questions, we have now a conversation with Jeffrey Wright. We are joined today by Jeffrey Wright, who plays at different times Bernard and Arnold and maybe someone, a third thing that we haven't even seen yet. Hello, Jeffrey Wright. How are you? Hey, how are you? At, at, at multiple different times. <laughs> um i was I'm, but i'm great i'm great thanks for having me you're great across all timelines in every in every time period you're great oh no that's not what i'm saying i was saying you were asking how i how, how i'm doing i'm doing great yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I wouldn't go that far but you know i, I do what i can yeah. um I, I wanted to ask you you know you the story around season one notoriously is that you didn't know for a time that you were playing a host because the show's creators wanted to get as humanoid a possible performance out of you. Right? No, 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 no. That's not exactly true. No, I didn't know. I didn't know when we shot the pilot uh, that, you know, Bernard wasn't the man he thought he was, but after we came back and shot the second episode and went into full production for the first season, uh, uh, Lisa Joy pulled me aside and and you know and cracked open my my uh, my robot skull as mm-hmm. happens from time to time with this show. So um, they just held back for the first episode and then they 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 laid it on me when we when we when we started in earnest because it it, it helped explain some things to me that were necessary as I tried to work through the scenes. Uh, particularly the scenes with Dolores, with Evan, um, that were actually Arnold, they really don't make sense if um, that's Bernard. So they were, it, it, was, it, was, it was necessary to kind of, you know, help me tap my way, you know, through the, 
you know, through the, the, the blindness and the mysteries that, you know, that, that the show kind of plays with. But so in, in watching this episode, when we get sort of a better understanding of what we saw in that very first scene in, in this season, season two, that conversation between Dolores that's taking place inside the cradle, the revelation of that scene in this episode, episode seven, seems to me that there's more of Arnold and Bernard than I even had previously thought what what at this point do you see as the distinction between bernard and arnold well i think the distinction really lies more in the relationships with the other hosts and with the other humans in the park than anything else and so that distinction exists on the page and again specifically going back to his to arnold's relationship with dolores there's a there's a creator created dynamic. There's a paternal um, uh, uh, paternal aspect to his relationship with her. There's a more genuinely kind of blood filled human warmth that, you know, he kind of uh, exhibits as a result of that. Whereas with Bernard, those relationships don't exist. He's got a, you know, mentor relationship with Elsie until he doesn't. He's got, um, you know, kind of the the opposite relationship with Ford, but, and he obviously has a relationship to the technology and to his responsibilities in the park. So it's a much more kind of uh, clinical uh, kind of relationship. So there's a more understated quality to him as opposed to that more, uh, that, that, that warmer quality that comes out simply as a result of, you know, of, of the relationship that, that Arnold has and, and builds. So those things just kind of built, came to me organically from the, from the, from the writing. Right. Um, that said, Dolores, as Ford describes, has in essence built, um, built Bernard within the simulation um, inside the cradle. And, and so Bernard is not only physically, um, you know, a facsimile of Arnold, but, but, but Ford's trying to recreate, you know, the essence, essential humanness of him too, you know, to the extent that, that he can. So, um, you know, they're, 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 they're not identical twins, but, you know, they're, He's, you know, he's obviously derived from him. So that was, I, I, saying all that, that those scenes were so uh, kind of nuanced and layered. And I think in some ways, you know, a lot of what we do is kind of complicated, kind of challenging. But those, the first, the, the, that scene, which we really shot in one, um, right. you know, in one take, although it plays over the, you know, the course of the season. That ha- that might have been the most delicate, kind of difficult math that I had to had to had to prove because it's it's a character trying to evolve into another character, <laughs> and and at the same time he is the character and then he's not because he's making missteps and then, so it was really kind of it was really it was a it was. Yeah, it it, it 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 took a little bit of uh, a little bit of, of puzzling through to to get there. 
Right. And some of this is, is in the writing of the scene, but the way in which that scene evolves from you think the character played by you, Bernard, is in con- directing the conversation. And then when you watch it again in a different light, you realize how much he's being directed in the conversation. And that's just a really hard thing to pull off the like who's leading, who's following in this interaction. How did you and Evan work on that together? Well, um, what we tried to do, and it's what we do often in the show is play off of the mirror reflections. Mm -hmm. So I was trying, even though you don't necessarily see it in, I was trying to replicate the very first time we see Dolores, which is the opening of the series where she's there in this kind of neutral state and, um, and, and we hear this voice taking her through this diagnostic exercise. So that was the reference for me was her there. So, you know, as you know, as you might expect, but also to try to re recreate to some degree, her physicality as Bernard might express it. And, uh, you know, as well as that, you know, that kind of neutral, you know, that neutral place at the start. And then we go from there. So, it was really just, you know, keeping within the, you know, the themes of the show, which, which we, which, which, which exists throughout of almost an Escher-like uh, quality of things where they're not quite organic, it seems, but they all kind of build off of one another and reflect off of one another. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but in in that fracturing, you know, part of part of the joy of Westworld and the occasional frustration is you maybe as a viewer don't know what you're seeing and you're trying to figure it out along with sometimes the characters who are trying to figure out what they're looking at. Um does it matter on your end if on the other side of this episode the audience better knows what they're looking at if they understand what they're seeing in that conversation between you and Dolores, or if they understand it at any given moment that you're giving us an Arnold versus a Bernard. Yeah, of course it matters. It, you know, I think though that the frustrations are understandable, but I also think that we tend to want everything, you know, we want, we want to be gratified. We want to know everything. We want to be in control. Um, this season is, 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 is about chaos and it's kind of, you know, it, that's, that, that's, you know, that's, that's the theme and we know that from the start. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, th- for us, of course, when we're playing these, we have to have as much information as we possibly can to convey them like truthfully, but at the same time, we had to give in to some unknowns as well. And, and at the, and, and we do that as, actors and filmmakers working on it with a trust for one another and a trust for our collaborators and Jonah and Lisa, our lead writers and a trust of the process. And I, and I hope that the audience will, um, will engage with us in that way too, because there was mystery in the first season on a different level than in the second season. But I think there was pretty satisfactory resolution of all of that toward the end. Mm -hmm. Now we're, we're, we're in a, you know, we're in a setting in which all of the kind of intricate order that was created in the first season uh, is dismantled and we're 
trying to recreate this new world, not knowing what it is, the characters not knowing what the, that new world might be, what they are within that world. And so there's a, there are multiple unknowns now that didn't exist prior. But, um, but if, we, if we, you know, as an audience kind of surrender to it and go along on the, on the trip, then I think at the end of the day, you know, we'll all, you know, we'll, 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 we'll wake up from the dream, wake up on the beach um, with a better handle on things than Bernard <laughs> did in the first season, uh, in, the, in the first episode. Right. And, you know, and, and, you know, and who knows where, where Bernard ends up, ends up at the end of this. But I think um, the intent is not to toy with people. The intent is to take people on, along for a ride that's built around this technology that we're exploring and, 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 and born out of that is all of, you know, the kind of mythology and the cultural questions and the, and, and, and the social questions, all of the questions that are raised out of this, but ultimately the, the, the intent is to, is to uh, satisfy. So you right. just have, you know, be patient with what you don't know, know what you know, and be patient with what you don't know, <laughs> not to, not to not to unfortunately try to bastardize Donald Rumsfeld in the course of all this, but um, <laughs> yeah, there there are no known unknown known knowns you don't know. I don't know, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, it, it, you know, but we'll get there. To exactly that 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 end, like this episode, we get closure on something I think I had just sort of assumed we wouldn't get closure on, which is a Bernard reckoning a bit even more with what happened with Teresa uh, in season one, which I mm. think a lot of people consider, you know, such a huge moment in the series and, and for the character and, and left a thread left a little bit dangling from season one. And the episode still finds time to tie that up. Did you expect that that was something that the show would revisit at all um, this season? Um, I try not to, ex- to, to have, you know, to, uh, you know, I try, I try to mitigate my expectations with this show <laughs> because I, uh, you know, I, I, there's no getting ahead of Jonah and Lisa. Right. Um, and, and, and it's just a, it's just a, a it's just an attempt at, at, at masochism to, and, and confusion to, to even try. But when, you know, when they, when they, you know, when I got that script and, and it made perfect sense, of course, that we did need to go back to that. And the ways in which it uh, it reveals itself, and and Bernard is revealed within it, I, were really really wonderfully constructed. I I, I thought, um, but no, I, I I I yeah. I again, I I kind of surrender to uh, to my you know my my writers, and right. and I've learned yeah, not not to not to. Uh, you know, to stay in my lane, stay in my lane and, and interpret, you know? And of, of course you've seen so much in all of you've ever done, but is there an extra degree of surreality when you have a moment of you, Jeffrey Wright, the actor confronting a whole row of hanging Jeffrey Wright robot bodies on sort of meat hooks uh, in this episode? Like what, what is that encountering that vision do for you yeah that only ever happens in my mind you know (laughs) that's the only place that's that's happened previously Uh but um yeah that was pretty that was a pretty uh pretty freaky day (laughs) um 
Um, but again, it, it, you know, it made, it made an organic sense. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, uh, I, 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 I wished all the, uh, you know, when we shot that we had some stand-ins, um, you know, as, as bodies there, as we walk into the space and, you know, I wish them all good luck trying to, you know, trying to pull off, uh, what their day's work was. Um, <laughs> and then I kind of, you know, I, you know, I, I, I kind of stepped in, uh, you know, and, and we, you know, shot the various, uh, pieces of me that were, that were necessary. But yeah, that was, that's, uh, that's definitely, uh, that's definitely an unusual position to find, to find oneself. Um, but uh, but again, I, 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 as a as a as a storytelling construct, I just you know loved throwing myself into it, as I do with most of the constructs that we, as, as I do with you know with most of the constructs or all of the, with the with the entire construct that Westworld represents, because because we can you know we can go to an infinite number of places owing to um, the premise and the technology that we're exploring. So it's it's. Uh, you know, it's it's really um, it's really gratifying as an actor to to, to to play in in such a kind of limited limited space, unlimited 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 space rather. Unlimited space, yeah. But I wanted to talk to you about a limitation that I feel like this episode puts on the series that it hasn't really had before, which is, um, and and of course, I'm willing to accept that this could all go out the window by the time next week rolls around. But when the cradle explodes in this episode that feels like it puts um, death stakes on characters that have never had death stakes put on them before in this show. And it feels like it really changes the rules and the, yeah, the, and the tension of what's going on for certain characters. Um, Is that, is that something that, that sort of blows back on you? Do you feel that going forward in the series? Yeah. They're, you know, they're, um, that's certainly, um, certainly what the purpose of that moment represents. That doesn't mean that that the, you know, the full extent of the opportunities that the technology allows for, you know, rebooting, but yeah, that's a big, that's a big, uh, big chunk of it. That's, uh, that's now. Um, out of the uh, out of the picture, and I think as well though as as Dolores describes, it's an attempt at a at a type of freedom and a type of further emulation of humanness. Yeah. Um, and also it puts the onus it it puts the onus uh, and the agency back on you know that individual machine now, as opposed to um, it being a machine you know you know, easily manipulated, replicated by, by, by the creator. So yeah, that's certainly, that's certainly um, part of the intent there. And the stakes, yeah, the stakes yeah. as a result are higher. Yeah. And then you've got also this, um, you exit this episode with this new passenger. You've got a Ford inside your head. Um, this is one of my favorite narrative tropes is like a haunting it's basically a haunting right you've got a like a ford ghost mm. sort of whispering in your ear that other people the ghost in the machine right right and you've also got some there's just more great work with as you said like reflection seeing anthony hopkins reflected in a number of surfaces as we have all season as he haunts you um 
what did you, what was your uh, reaction when you found out that you would get to have a ghost Anthony Hopkins with you for a part of the season? Well, um, it, it, my reaction was uh, uh, that he was back was obviously uh, great, great news and, uh, and a thrill because um, he, I mean, who doesn't, who doesn't, who's in our business want to work with, with, with Anthony Hopkins. Um, <laughs> and he's, he's such a, you know, he's such a singular actor. Um, but as well for me, I just love hanging out with them, <laughs> you know, when the cameras aren't rolling. So uh, we have a, we have a good time uh, just chatting about, you know, about him and, you know, his, career you know which spans from you know olivier to the present you know across the ocean and back again so there's that but also he's a you know he's a huge and he's got some ridiculous stories too from you know from you know his wilder days but you know he's also a you know he's got a keen eye on for history and politics and so we kind of swim in that uh and that stuff and, you know, swim in the current, uh, the current, uh, political cesspool that we're all, um, we're all experiencing right now. So that's, you know, that's a great joy, but then, you know, working with him, uh, when the camera is on is, uh, is, is just, uh, you know, it's just the reason that you, you know, we, we, we do with reason that you want to, that you do what you do. You want to work with someone who's going to, um, give you as much as he gives you and you in return try to you know try to reciprocate but as for him <laughs> being this um you know this uh this specter inside inside me you know that's all great drama um but at the same time you know uh it's just a continuation of you know of this torment tormenting and torture yeah. that you know that 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 we see that we see from the first season so we, you know we'll see after episode seven where that goes and how that evolves but um yeah it's 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 uh you know it's it's probably not the, the most uh enjoyable thing for bernard happy to see you but you know do you, do you really have to you know you have to be so close you know <laughs> it's um yeah yeah um yeah. Yeah, I I think that um I I remember back at the end of season 1 Ford Ford says to Bernard that he will have to suffer more before he's free or awake or whatever it is the ultimate goal is for these for these hosts. Um is that is that part of what you think is going on for this character is an intentional torment from Ford in order to spur an awakening? It would seem so. That would seem to be uh, Bernard's, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the color of Bernard's storyline, you know, for season two. However, I'm not, I think the question becomes how much of it is forward and how much of it is, uh, is you know, personal pathway. Mm-hmm. So that's that's one of the themes that we play with and that we explore and obviously ford represents you know this he represents many things but obviously he represents this greater creator for them 
so there's a metaphor for all of us, I think, as audience and humans. And we play, I think, with that on levels going forward that will resonate even further as metaphor. That's all I'll say. Excellent. (laughs) My last question for you, and once again, thank you so much for your time, is... um, this season, you know, you you and all the actors on the show have talked about sort of what feels like the endless possibilities for the show in terms of different worlds, different realities, different temporalities, all of that. Um, but one of the fun things that season two has done is sort of mixed and matched different characters together. Um, but you wind up with a lot of similar scene partners. You've got Evan, you've got Shannon, you've got Sir Anthony Hopkins. Is there anyone in the cast that you are so hoping Bernard gets his fate matched with in season three that you haven't had a chance to work much with yet? Well, I guess I've really interacted and engaged, exchanged with most um, most of the characters, except um, uh, the man in black um, with Ed. Mm-hmm. We only had one like brief, like literal passing in the night. Um, at in, during the finale last season, so um, I you know I do wonder what may be in store there, and um, that would be uh, that would be uh, obviously um, interesting and and you know kind of uh, f- uh, fertile ground to explore. <clears throat> but that said, <clears throat> what I what I appreciate about our show. I, and I and I think uh, what audi- audiences appreciate is the you know just the range of uh, skilled actors that we have, and the collaboration with each of them is is re- rewarding for me in individual specific ways. I love the dynamics that um, Shannon and I are able to play off of and create which are different than the dynamics that I, that I play with Luke um, Hemsworth and Stubbs and with Evan and with Tony and they, but they're each distinctive and we play in different ways as, you know, as actors together. And, and I find, I find um, like genuine satisfaction um, and delight in each of those and each of those. And I think, um, it just speaks to why this show is what it is for all of us, because it's, again, it, it, it's that rare thing in the work that we do. And it's the only thing in the work that we do that makes it worth it. And that's the collaboration between the partners, whether they're actors, writers, um, carpenters, grips, <laughs> Yeah. Everyone involved. Mm-hmm. The collaboration is the thing that makes the play. And we just we, we, we have a great gift in one another and all of that. And I hope the audience uh, gets that. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much again for your time. And uh, I can't wait to see what happens for Bernard and Arnold and the rest of your characters uh, as the season rolls on. Cool. Thanks. Thanks for your time.
uh, before we go, we did want to address we got we got a bunch of emails. Like well, now that we're back on sync with everyone, we we now that our timelines have synced up with everyone else, we mm-hmm. got a few uh, emails after last week's episode. Most of them were about seppuku. It's funny because like. Um, I in my other Westwater podcast that I host, we've been talking a lot about the Juliet bathtub suicide, and I got so many emails about that with like the subject labeled suicide in my email inbox that I think I must be on some watch list now. Uh-oh. Uh Now I got a bunch of seppuku emails, so like I'm definitely on a few creative lists probably. But um, this one comes from Ronin fifty two. We had mentioned last week that you know when when the character Musashi fights, uh, I think the character's name is Tanaka uh, in in Shogun World. He sort of offered him the sword to kill himself, and then he beheaded him. And we sort of said beheaded him anyway, because we thought that was like outside of the ritual of seppuku. But we were enlightened That's, by a number of emails. Right. Uh, Ronin52, great n- name for an email about seppuku, wrote in and said, Long time listener, first time commenter, just have some thoughts on Sunday's Westworld. Like so much of the other moments from episode six, the samurai duel has more to unpack. Within the rules of samurai film, the beheading of Tanaka is an act of mercy, not cruelty. Musashi fulfills the role of Tanaka's second, the Kaishakunin, ending his painful and drawn-out suicide with a quick death. He proved himself the better samurai. With this stroke, the disgraced Musashi is redeemed as an honorable samurai, and his character's arc plays in the theme of this episode. Uh, how does this and the other representations of mercy juxtapose with those of the darkest timeline Teddy? Question mark. Cheers, Oronin. So yeah, we, we did have like Teddy uh, offering a tech a bullet um, on the bomb train last week. Uh, so there is that. But then, of course, this week he punched someone's face off. So I'm not sure we're going to like hold out hope for Teddy having a lot of mercy stored up inside of him. But um, but I guess we could talk about, um, I don't know, Dolores giving Maeve some mercy or, or yeah. similar. Yeah. Um, but no, it's good to be enlightened about that. Um, maybe I sh- you know, we could have done a little more homework before delving into feudal Japan. But that's why we have people to write into it. So we don't have to do homework. Yeah, so if we messed up anything this week, including the pronunciation of uh, Les Escochers or, uh, you know, the Library of Alexandria or anything, or maybe I named the wrong Beethoven somebody. I maybe Anthony Hopkins is like actually from like Canada, you know, we, we're just we, <laughs> we're, we're saying Welsh. Yeah, <laughs> maybe, maybe Catherine Zeta-Jones shouldn't be in the show. I don't know. Whatever you want to say. <laughs> Whatever you think. Uh, maybe you think Angela's coming back. Um, maybe, yeah. Maybe you don't maybe think Teddy. Got, maybe you don't think murder Teddy's hot in his in I his was about to say military. Exactly effort, which, in which case, stop listening because you're crazy. In, in which case, you're wrong. Yeah. Um. But so, um. Yeah. Murder Teddy was great to see, but all I really want for you, uh, Richard, before the season is over, is one more look at Logan. So we can hold out hope for that. Um, oh my and, my uh, my sweet Ben Barnes. Yes. <laughs> um. Until we see Ben Barnes again, where can people find your work, Richard? Uh, in, uh, uh, not in the cradle, in the real world, on VF.com, uh, and on Twitter at Rylaws, R-I-L-A-W-S. And I am at Joe Wrote This on Twitter. You can also find me on VanityFair.com. And we will be back with next week's episode. We just have, like, I think, what, yeah, three more episodes left. So we're almost there. And, and I think I haven't really talked to Richard about this, but we're, we're brainstorming some ideas of where we might go next with still watching uh, franchise. But Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. 
Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th.